I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. How are you? Nice to be back with you again. Guess what? I'm on a dirt track, walking by some recently ploughed fields out here in the east of England, in the countryside of the county of Norfolk. I'm walking on a cold day in April 2019 with my best dog friend in the world, Rosie. Hey, Rosie. What? Come over here. And say hi quickly. We'll have a good chat at the end of the podcast, but just come and say a quick hello to the podcast. Rosie, come here. She's loping. Come and say hi. Can you make some noise? Rose? Do do like a wolf or something. Don't patronise me. Sorry, I don't mean to patronise, but is there any way you could just prove that you're here and you're a dog? Do the noise you do when we go for a walk, when I say that let's go for a walk. You go, oh. Rosie's looking at me. Why are you doing the noise? We're already on a walk. All right, sorry. There you go. That was a little coat shake. Off you go. Enjoy your gambling. And uh, we'll catch up at the end of the podcast. There's a lot to catch up about, isn't there? A lot of important stuff. There's a few live dates I want to share with you and details of appearances on other podcasts few recommendations for you oh and a um a trail for another episode coming up in this run of the podcast which you might want to do a little preparation for anyway all that will be explained at the end but right now let me tell you a bit about podcast number 89 which features a conversational meander with actor writer and british tv panel show king David Mitchell. As I speak, David is 44. He is married with a young human child. He is a graduate of Cambridge University, and that's where he met his comedy partner, Robert Webb. David and Rob have written and starred in a number of TV and radio sketch shows together, as Mitchell and Webb. And, of course, they also starred in the Channel 4 sitcom Peep Show, written by Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, which ran from 2003 to 2015. David's other acting roles include the part of William Shakespeare in the BBC Two sitcom Upstart Crow, which uh, started airing in 2016 and was written by one of David's comedy heroes, Ben Elton. We talk a little bit about that in this conversation, which was recorded in November of last year, 2018, around the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. Uh, I only say that because I refer to it a little bit in the conversation. And we talked about bad habits and how best to deal with them, bad driving, bad small talk at school gates... The technical challenges of filming Peep Show, David's comedy influences, and lots of other important modern stuff. I'll be back, as I said, at the end with more stodgy waffle. 
and news about uh, some exciting podcast-related events. Links to these and other related bits and pieces should be found in the description of this podcast. But right now, here we go! Last weekend I went to, there's a brilliant thing at the Postal Museum in London where they're running a train, it's called the Mail Train, Yeah. and it used it was a system Sexist. that was built in the 30s, uh, <laughs> it was built in the 30s to basically take posts from the different depots around London, underneath London, because post was so important then, and there were loads of deliveries every day, and it was a major medium, and then it closed down in 2004 because, you know, people were fine with letters being late and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plus, they didn't as- send any. Yeah, exactly. So the few that get sent might as well wait around in a gridlocked van. So they've turned it into a, you know, a museum, as they will with our entire civilization, piece by piece. <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's a brilliant thing to go to. It's, they've done a great display, and you ride on the train like the parcels used to, but the parcels didn't know what it felt like because they weren't sentient. So you know, I would recommend it. But also, I instinctively thought, oh, this is terrible. We used to have this thing for taking parcels around, and you know, we we used to have proper infrastructure, and we used to be great, and now everything's terrible. Uh, and then I thought, but actually, no, it's fine. There is an internet, and that's probably better than letters, really. Yeah, <laughs> is it? We shouldn't have stayed with letters deliberately. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I have to tell myself change isn't always bad. No, it's good to be reminded of that, especially yeah. these days, I think. Yeah. But then people who do say, actually, things aren't so bad these days are then generally sort of privileged white blokes yeah. that say yeah. that so they can fuck off. <laughs> I tell you what, if the privileged white blokes are saying things are okay now, they need to l- learn some history because things were great for them. <laughs> <laughs> They've missed their glory days. <laughs> they really have. Yeah. But, you know, a hundred years ago, things for a lot of people were not as good as they are now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, it's a very reassuring thing about history. Yeah. That, you know, obviously, there could be thousands of nuclear weapons could explode in 25 minutes' time. Sure. In which case, what I'm about to say will no longer apply. But still, broadly speaking, now is not a bad era to live in. It's sort of, sort of almost anywhere, because there are terrible things happening in the world at the moment, but that's a constant. Terrible things have always happened. And if you roll the dice, what's most likely to come up is, oh, tell you what, you're a 4th century infant and you die in an hour's time. <laughs> or... Or you're a malnourished peasant and you die of exhaustion at the age of 21. So sort of anything in Britain in 2018 is statistically the equivalent of a six. What was the philosophy of a person growing up in the Middle Ages like compared to now when they knew that they were going to be lucky to make it to 45? Yeah. What kind of goals are you setting? (laughs) I don't know how. I mean, yeah, I think it depends on the person. Yeah. Doesn't it? I mean, very much depends on their role. You know, I'm assuming they're most likely to be a king or an archbishop. But <laughs> it may be that many medieval people were neither. I haven't looked into it. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose most people didn't 
have to have goals because they were released from any sense of self-determination by the desperation to remain alive till the next harvest. So what a what a what a tremendous boon that must have been. Well, yeah, you don't, have, don't have to worry about your career at all. Just worry about the turnips. In a way, that sounds nice, though, doesn't it? Well, if the turnips, as long as everything's okay up, with the turnips, yeah, and that's fine. Sure, Those are, that's great. I talked over your very good pun there. What the turnip turn up? Sure, thing. I, I I wasn't happy with it anyway. I was. <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd hate you to think that was in any way planned. I apologise for drawing attention to it. <laughs> Um, and when you were a young man, you used to dress up as those popes and archbishops and kings. <laughs> Is that right? I, well, yeah, I spent a lot of my childhood uh, dressing up in basically costumes that were normal clothes that I'd adapted. OK, to so, turn yourself into some form of authority figure. Yes. And one of the things I was a lot was some sort of king. Mm. I was never an archbishop or a pope. OK. But I was a, I was a, and I didn't have a crown. But I was sort of aware that kings only wore crowns, you know, on ceremonial occasions. What form did the role-playing take then? I can't really remember. I sat in a chair that I considered to be a throne, and I would have a sword. Did you have, like, a haughty demeanour that you would adopt? Yes. very haughty demeanour. The costume I was in, in my mind, was essentially 18th century dress. (laughs) So there's there's sort of stockings that come up to the knee and a kind of frock coat. I was that sort of king. Uh, and I think I would have liked to have a powdered wig, but that wasn't available. What about a mitre or something like that? No, only popes have mitres, do Mite, they? Um, uh, bishops, bishops, archbishops, and go. popes have mitres. I didn't. I had no. I'm, kings just have swords. King, in my world, kings had swords, okay. and also I would use the sword as sort of a stick as well. I was an old king. Hmm. I was drawn to the sort of glamour of elderly power. <laughs> Where did that? Uh, attraction come from i don't really know the glamour of elderly power you know it's not surprising that that you know then later in life i've got all nostalgic about the the way the postal service used to be organized (laughs) um through line i used to get in the winter i used to get chapped hands yeah because i would always wash my hands after going to the loo but i wouldn't always dry them and then they'd sort of get dry and wrinkly on the back and i'd Ah. look at my hands and i thought oh yeah they look old and I really liked that. So do you relish the prospect of growing old in some ways? No, no, I don't. I think I liked the thought of the trappings of being elderly when I was a child. Wisdom, and, respect. Yeah, and I think and children, a lot of children that are drawn to their grandparents, I, th- I think on some level they're, they're interested in the idea of being old. They want to be six rather than five or seven rather than six. Yeah. You know, growing up is better. So if you're like 74 then that's incredibly high ranking in this uh, system of one-upmanship that, that children have. So I, you know, I think it was sort of to do with that. But you're aware of the, all the positives of being old in terms of you've got experience and authority and wisdom and, you know, they're potentially the parents of your parents. What a trump card that is. But you, you're not aware so much of the imminence of death. Yes. That's, that's definitely the downside of being old. The irreversibility of the various manifestations of decrepitude and the imminence of death. That is, that's the massive... You could be old for like a few months, like, you know, dyeing your hair, Uh and then go back to being middle-aged and then young for another year, and then then that that would be fine. Nobody objects to grey hair. They just object to your hair going that colour and never turning back, and that's a sign of other things you can't turn back. Yeah, in the future, 
according to Yuval Noah Harari. Do you know him? Is he the... Sapiens. Yeah. He says that, like, everything he says is, like, it's already happening. This isn't speculation. This is reality. It's happening now. And he's saying there's all kinds of things that medical science will enable us to do when we get older and all sorts of ways that particularly the rich and powerful, of course, will be able to extend their lives and you'll be able to just go in and a combination of gene therapy and bionics basically will enable you just to to cruise on for years and years and years you just go in and replace a load of bits and pieces every three years or whatever yeah when they wear down and you can live into your 300s or whatever are you going to be signing on for that probably but i always think i'm very short-sighted and i wear contact lenses quite a bit and less so now that i'm you know, my wife doesn't seem to mind my glasses, so I can't be bothered to wear contact lenses so much. But I always think, why don't I just get them lasered, though? And then I think, well, I'm up for that in general, but I'm not up for that on any specific day. <laughs> so the day in which I get up and write, today is the day that what you're choosing to do today, rather than to not do this today, is to go into a place where someone will point a laser at your eyes and slice a bit off your eye with that laser and apparently that'll be fine although people do say don't inhale because you can smell your eyes cooking yeah and i think on any given day i'll go well yeah in principle that would be good to have perfect eyesight but not today and i think i might at the age of 270 i might be like that about death kind uh-huh. of like, yeah i think i've had a good innings and everything and that's all fine so yes i think basically i'm not just going to carry on replacing parts indefinitely so at some point i'll come to terms with death and deliberately die yeah just just not today yeah yeah i mean i'm sure i'll change my tune but recently i've been coming to terms with the idea of just going for the three score years and ten and i'll be delighted if i get that because i used to think oh i'll definitely be a hundred because it's modern times and also i'm very lucky like me personally (laughs) things generally go right for me but then at a certain point i stopped thinking that and I thought, oh, no, realistically, I'll be lucky to make it to 70. But, you know, what's that, 20 well, statistically, years? Statistically, I mean... I should do, right. You should make it to 70. That, yeah. That would be below average. But also, you've already got to your current age. I've already won. Oh, oh you've got through the, the various death spikes. Yeah, yeah. The infant death spike, the unwise men in their 20s death spike. 30s is a good, safe, non-death decade. And then 40s, it starts to creep up again. Yeah. Until the, you know, the 110s. Although recently with the the World War I coverage, they had quite a few people in their hundreds on there, some of whom looked really pretty great. Like, totally compass mentis, Mm. didn't look a day over 80. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was good. You need to move much faster in the street Come on, I want you to be speedy with your feet You're wasting my valuable time I got people to meet But instead I'm moving very slowly Behind your ass Hey, I'm important I need to travel faster How can you walk so slowly? I'm very important You are a walking disaster you have just walked here. I have, yeah. yeah. How long was that walk? 
it would have been 45 minutes, but I, I gave myself an hour and went slightly circuitously. Right. I like to do an hour's walking every day. Oh, you're still doing that? Because I read your book. Yes. I'm a st- few years ago, Back Story. Yes, I still do that most days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the, the motif in Back Story was your back problems, hence mm-hmm. the title. Interwoven with, you know, reminiscences about your life and career. Very enjoyable. And how, how is your back? Basically, all right. Yeah, yeah. The walking has sort of has it, it's, know, it's it, continued to be it's continu- efficacious. Yeah, I mean, I, have a, I think I have a grumbly back, but yeah, but no, it was terrible for most part of a year. About uh, eleven years ago, it was terrible. I and I thought <laughs> this is unsustainable. But at the same time, I'm sort of uh, don't know how to address it. And I'm, so you're and in I don't want to have an pain. operation. Constant, constant stiffness, right? Okay. And discomfort, and and I would w- look at myself. Sometimes in the mirror, moving around, and I thought of it. This is like someone really quite elderly. But you know, that was at a particularly bad few months. And then, yes, I started trying to walk an hour every day, and it really, yeah. Now I just get the odd grumble. Well, good. I'm glad your back is doing better. Thank you. Because that is a nightmare. Those kinds of things. I was going to do a. I'm not sure if I'm going to do a little sponsor read for the Versus Arthritis Society. But they are kind of rebranding or at least trying to spread a new message about people not, you know, take arthritis seriously. Right. It's not just one of these slightly amusing aspects of getting old. Mm. I don't think anyone thought it was amusing, though, did they? No. But anyway, they they won't be able to take it more seriously. What do you do about arthritis? What do you do? Probably turns out walking is an absolute nightmare for arthritis. Yeah. It's just if you walk an hour every day, that's an arthritis time bomb. <laughs> well, the thing that was supposed... When you were at school, do you remember, like, if you cracked your knuckles, people would say, that's yeah. how you're going to get arthritis now. Yeah. It's, it's not as terrifying for children as some warnings. Yeah. Is it? That's one... <laughs> so I always think that with smoking. Uh-huh. The genius of smoking is that it, it, it carries... It's dangerous. So, you know, there's a cool element to it. It's it's sort of to do with death, and therefore you can seem like a rebel. But at the same time, the danger is on a timescale that can't possibly impact on the uh, teenagers who are thinking of taking it up. Right. Just that you, this, this could take years off the end of your life. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, well, I mean, I'll stop at some point. I'll stop Probably, at some point. But either way, years off the end of my life. Exactly, when it's going to be know. shit anyway. Yeah, so that warning actually, I think, adds to the cachet of the product. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> yeah. If they said it doesn't do you any harm, but it's smelly, then, then we go, oh, yeah, it's smelly. Maybe I should stop. But no, no, it's dangerous. Yeah. It's really foolish. It's imprudent. At some point, have they ever experimented with slightly more lateral warnings because they've that where they are now it's just pure horror Mm. organs and diseases and and then a bit of emotional they've tried sort of emotional techniques with the impotence and with the children sat around the dying person yeah um tugging on the heartstrings in those ways again those things aren't going to address the people who are thinking of taking it up i don't think Impotence is a tremendous worry for teenage boys. More the worry is getting an unexplained erection on a coach. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 
and equally the, the feeling of responsibility to dependents who you may leave if you die young. Again, that's not something many 16-year-olds really struggle with. Yeah. Because so. my wife used to smoke very heavily and gave up and it was, a, you know, it's a really difficult drug to kick. But you sort of realise that the people, who, a lot of people who hate smoking, they don't want people to give up smoking. They want to hate smoking. They want to say, you shouldn't smoke. Among the anti-smoking lobby are a lot of people who aren't really, if they fully analyse their motives, uh, they're not really into the most effective way of stopping people smoking. They're into getting to say to people who smoke, you idiot, it gives you cancer, you idiot. And, you know, if everyone stops smoking, that's gone. You never get to say that again. <laughs> you never get to identify yourself as in the more prudent tribe that didn't do the carcinogenic thing purely uh, to seem cool. Yeah, that's right. And they were a sort of early iteration of something that's now absolutely gone viral in every conceivable way, i.e. the enjoyment of judging other people yeah. harshly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I always think this about climate change mm -hmm. the thing that that so much of the sort of advocacy of the addressing of climate change which is just happening is undermined by the fact that there are too many people who they don't want cars and factories and things anyway they wouldn't want them if they were harmless and that doesn't speak to the mainstream who don't want to accept this uh, terrible thing that all the things we do that that are convenient and cool and warm and uh, and involve going on holiday and all, you know all this stuff we have that destroys the environment we want to keep that middle ground which is who you've got to convince they're very susceptible to people who will say do you know what it's not really happening yeah because that's what they want to hear it's what i want to hear yeah. i would love to believe it's not really happening because I, i i'm not that into the idea of just cleansing the environment because it would be a nicer way to exist i like electricity i like cars i like farmed meat and all these things but i do accept that if we carry on like this we render the only inhabitable space in the universe uninhabitable uh, but when doing something about that is advocated by people who are sort of putting it in a kind of and this is a positive because we can be sort of in some way cleansed uh, right go th back then you to say, the no, that's really unhelpful hunter-gatherer lifestyle that you have no interest in whatsoever it, it, well yeah I mean, I mean i don't think anyone's seriously saying that but it's still so oh, it's some still, people are <laughs> well it's definitely well i mean that there's no way the planet could support seven billion people like that but it, it's just so frustrating that people as you say in this the internet social media world we're in now people identify so strongly with the things that make them who they are well i'm a green person i'm a i don't believe in climate change person or i'm a doctor who fan or whatever it is that they don't really want to convince anyone they don't they're not interested in the middle ground the centrists are a despised majority they, they're just interested in um in, maintaining in, their own position yeah and, and saying things that get applause from their own choir that they're preaching to yeah yeah the green party says so many things that allows you know the donald trumps of this world to take the piss out of them and right. yet their fundamental message is just for god's sake there's a fire <laughs> we need to put it out yeah it's weird isn't it yeah it's almost like you don't want the message to be hearable by people who you despise You know, I don't think that's anyone's conscious view, but I think subconsciously people put it in a way that is antithetical to the values of the very people they should be trying to convince. Yeah, because I think people are sometimes worried that 
to put it in that language, you would have to compromise or sell out to some degree. Yeah. In the case of, you know, climate change, if you're not doing everything you can to just dispel this entire myth that it's not happening, then you're you're doing something much more irresponsible and you're selling out to an image of your own purity at the expense of humanity's future. Yeah, but they're not saying that... They believe that they are doing everything they can to tell people that that's the situation they're saying it as loudly and positively as they possibly can but it's the way that it's being said isn't it yeah that is off-putting and that causes people as you say to shut down and to withdraw and also the lack of kind of realistic alternatives or useful bits of advice for how we can realistically change i don't know maybe you know i suppose it's a question of well you got to eat less meat and if you're George Monbiot, well, you, you have to stop having children and taking international flights. And I don't know, yeah. I mean, maybe that's well, the way you have to do, I think. But, you know, I don't know. I think you have to find a political system where you can make the things that are environmentally destructive appropriately expensive. Mm-hmm. And that's an unpopular way of putting it. But that's how governments have historically inhibited things that are dangerous to society. You, you know, you, an economist would say you tax what you want to discourage and you don't tax what you want to encourage. And if you want to discourage the uh, use of carbon and encourage an economy that is looking for ways of finding alternatives to that, then you put a tax on carbon. But then all of our political systems are so fundamentally undermined by lobbying, and by corporations uh, twisting politicians' arms, that there's no way they'll never do that. Right, uh, and taxes are always so such a... They're not really a vote winner. No, exactly, yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, that you like cars. Do you like cars? Uh, no, I don't like cars. Really, okay. No, no. What, what I mean is I, I like, yeah, a, you like, I like a world in which it's possible to get around at 30 miles an hour rather than on a donkey. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, I have benefited from the invention of the car. What, you hate donkeys? <laughs> wow, that's harsh. I just bumped into you. At the supermarket, I was backing out of a parking space and I hit your car. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. But you're angry now, very angry now, and that's making me very angry too. drive right no oh do you not not out of merit out of uh you know out of um ignoring your responsibilities to your family exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. how did that happen then did were you frightened to drive you just never found the right moment i yeah i was frightened and then i did an intensive driving course when i was about 30 i think Mm. for a week and i hated it and i took a driving test and failed yeah and I left it there. That's, that's where, you know, I haven't had to do anything since then. And I, um, I feel a bit bad. My wife is a keen driver. She likes driving and doesn't mind doing most of the driving. I think there are times when she minds doing all of the driving. I was busted for speeding on the motorway the other day. I was driving to Canterbury to do a show. And I don't drive that often. I, I get everywhere that I can, if possible, by bike on my Brompton. 
but every now and again it's just going to take too long to get there by train or it's just overwhelmingly convenient to drive so this is one of those occasions and I always forget about the speed cameras in those situations and this is on the motorway where everyone is just overtaking you know they're in the fast mm. lane you're not supposed to call it the fast lane it's not a fast lane, it's an overtaking lane. It's a marginally less slower lane. Yes, but... You, the it's, incredibly it's a, slow and safe lane, <laughs> the also incredibly slow and safe, but potentially marginally faster lane, and the... The overtaking lane. Right, OK. The safe overtaking lane. Please stick to the national speed limit. <laughs> so, I think overtaking is, is very offensive language. I think <laughs> it, should be, it should be, you know, whatever, the, the impatience lane. Yes, um, the, the failing to be at one with oneself lane, <laughs> and the failing to be at one with oneself to an even greater extent lane. Well, that's exactly why I was in that lane, and I got busted. And rather than take the points, I went on a speed course. Um, so you've obviously never been on a speed course. No. It's pretty boring. I mean, it's quite a good deterrent because it's wham that's half your day down the lav and you are sat in a school classroom environment with a group of strangers i'm ashamed to say i've been on a couple of speed courses in my life Um, can you go on enough that you would qualify to be one of the teachers (laughs) the teachers are at pains to tell you how spotless their record is Right. I mean, they, they're they meant to be whiter than white. There's no question that they would be hired if they had ever been guilty of any sort of infraction because they just need to be holier than thou in That's all circumstances. That's a very odd approach to that sort of training, though. It would be like a sort of clinic for, you know, alcoholism yeah. where none of the people there had ever been there well, in any sense at all. Like, I don't know what you're doing. I was, you know, I once had a sip of whiskey. I thought it was disgusting. <laughs> you're out of your mind. <laughs> I might be wrong about that. Maybe they were uh, wild people. in their youth. It should be like, oh, yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like. And then suddenly Listen. there's a roundabout and you lose control. <laughs> and suddenly you're six feet in the air in your white van and you feel like you're going to live forever. But you're not. Um, and there was a woman, an older woman, sat on my table at the course and she was very proactive and keen to participate because they ask you all these questions. It's just like being at school, you know. It's like... Uh, what, okay, what uh, what are the kind of things you... Uh, it was in a Scottish instructor. Yeah. What are the kind of... Th- this is a Scottish accent. What are the kind of things you can do if you're worried your concentration's flagging? What sort of things can you do to take steps to correct that? So Cathy puts up her hand and says, You can turn up the radio very loud. And he says, uh, <laughs> Okay, how would that help your concentration, Cathy? Well, if you're falling asleep, it would wake you up. <laughs> says Kathy and right the way through every, everyone's like no one else is the whole project because you're there for five hours the whole yeah. project is don't meet the instructor's gaze participate as little as you possibly can let's just get through this as quickly as possible <laughs> without making it obvious that that's your strategy right. so but maybe Kathy's right though maybe I mean but she was she, she, did she make it longer or is five she, yeah yeah oh, yeah, yeah. See, that's that the is bad tip of the yeah. iceberg I gave you there Right. She was chatting away and uh, talking about experiences she'd had with her husband. My husband would never let me use the cruise control. He'd never let me use it. He hated women drivers. 
and it would just go into all this. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Kathy. I mean, if she'd had the opportunity, she would have been talking about the whole history of her relationship with her husband <laughs> and all the chats they had in the car. But you do come away from the course. They, 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 there's a long section in which they illustrate, they sort of remind you, if you do get into an accident, and it is quite serious, they draw lots of pictures to illustrate all the people that that's going to affect. Right. Not just, um, you know, your you and your life will be affected, the victim's life will be affected, the families and the friends of all of that victim, even the people in the emergency services, the trauma that will be suffered by them if it's a particularly grisly accident, uh, you know, the police... All, all these yeah. people are affected by, by these accidents. And it seems like very obvious and banal in a way. You're like, duh, yeah, of course, it's no good to have an accident. But actually, they spend such a long time talking about it that it really does sink in right. to some degree. And you think, oh, yeah, maybe for the sake of just getting ahead of some annoyingly slow guy, it's uh, it's not such a good deal. I mean, that's definitely something that puts has put me off driving. Yeah. The, the sort of feeling of that. You know, on a low level, the constant awesome responsibility, and that most people are pretty sensible and careful. And but it could happen to anyone, really. The, yeah. The loss of concentration at a certain time, and then something terrible happens, and yeah, that ripple effect of ruined lives is the consequence of a mundane journey. When you know you, you glance at a text message, right? Exactly. Or you can't get your phone to pair with the fucking bluetooth yeah. stereo yeah exactly yeah. bluetooth is responsible for a lot of these things i think we all agree that the world would be a better place without bluetooth <laughs> the wireless dream yeah is it was it worth all the pain yeah i think that the the viking it was named after was a better than the technology <laughs> but i keep thinking it was like, a viking wasn't it was it yeah, I think I think because it's it's um, Ericsson or Nokia or something, a Scandinavian oh. company, and they named it after a famous Viking warrior. No called, way! I, called Bluetooth. Shut up! Are you just that, no? I think up? that's true. I'm gonna have to Google that now. I don't know whether he had any sort of ESP. <laughs> right, Hetz. Bluetooth. Here we go. Bluetooth was named after a 10th century king, Harald Bluetooth, king of Denmark and Norway, also known as Harald Bluetooth Gormson, or Harald I of Denmark. Holy shit! There you go. Good knowledge. Where the hell did you get that? I've done a lot of trivia-based panel shows. <laughs> I can't believe you actually retain the, <laughs> the yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, can't, I couldn't do CPR. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but to go back to the driving thing, I was, you, you know, I, I'm just trying to think through, like, do I want to say this or not? But um, <laughs> not something I've been doing with all my talking about environmentalists being pathetically poor advocates of their own cause. People are really relaxed about that sort of thing. It's not like anyone listening to this online will be in any way scrutinising it for any lines I may inadvertently right, cross. And, and we don't live in those times. No, no. But the main thing that I felt coming out of the driving course, though, right, to go back to that, was that I thought, well, this is all valid and useful and important. Why didn't I have to go to a similar course before I had children? <laughs> and why, why doesn't anybody? I mean, is that just so banal that it's not even worth saying? 
because I think it all the time. Like, th- there are certain fundamental things that I could have been taught. And I'm not just talking about going to antenatal classes. Mm. I'm talking about the actual nuts and bolts of parenting right through until they're maybe 20 or something. Yeah. It would be fucking useful. Uh, uh, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, all the time... You're sort of thinking, how is this affecting my child's brain? Yeah. <laughs> Once you get past the simple, okay, we're, we're, you know, the the initial terrifying challenge of keeping a very vulnerable infant alive. Babies are really small and helpless. I mean, I found that very, very worrying. Mm. You know, and I knew it in principle, but in practice, and you sort of think, this is really, I, why couldn't we be like horses where they like get up after about 25 minutes and start running around and having some grass? You know, that's a basically are a horse later that day and it's you know babies just aren't people for for years and years and years mm. and, that, and that's right but no but now i now that our daughter is you know it's healthy thankfully and chatty and now you're thinking how how do you make her have a brain that can be happy yeah. you know she's all happy now really upbeat and positive how old is she now three and a half okay um that's a th- good age yeah it is a good age. It's really great. But um, but I don't know. You know, I, I, I want her to be easygoing and contented. And I don't know how to make her that. I mean, generally, I think the wisdom is they'll reflect most things back at you. So if you're relatively easygoing and loving, mm. then they, they shouldn't go too badly wrong. Yeah. So you are still a few years away from the school gates mm-hmm. and the small talk that will be involved at the school gates, doing the school run or whatever. Yeah. How's that going to be for you? Are you the king of small talk? Uh, No. I think I will try not to think about that in advance, but I think I find increasingly most casual social interactions that I come away from, I feel like I've been insufficiently friendly or insufficiently normal. And I think a lot of people feel like that. I don't know if it's quite most people. But I also think I, I worry that I'm caring a bit less about that. OK. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm just being a bit, you know, and I'm just accepting that, I'm, well, I'm not that friendly. Yeah. It turns out, you know, it's not like I mean to be unfriendly, but I don't mean to be friendly enough. And that is being unfriendly. Yeah. And maybe it's just better. Everyone will expect me to be unfriendly and then they won't try and talk to me. And it'll be fine. I can be friendly with my actual friends who know what I'm like and I'm less shy with them. And so I will talk to them. But I haven't really got the energy or concentration or courage to be a normal chatty guy just generally. I tried that exact speech with my wife when she was complaining about me not being more proactive with the with school socialising. Right. <laughs> and it didn't go well. <laughs> she, she, what did she say? She said, that's, that's a load of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you just, you just be nice. You just, you're able to be nice. Be nice. It's a question of having to do it all the time. Exactly. Yeah. I think that may be something about being, I don't know, what I like about being a comedian and, and performing in general is that you sort of, there are occasions where you sort of have to be energised and think and, you know, in certain, you know, situations, chatty. I'm trying to be chatty now. Yeah. But you sort of know while doing it that, that, that that's part of a sort of discreet project. 
And then when that project ends, you can go back to being unfriendly and morose and quiet. And, <laughs> um, you know, that you, yes, yeah, fine. It's, it's nice to, you know, put on a, an iron shirt and have a wash, but it's also nice not to have to just be generally clean. Yeah. But you won't be able to avoid those duties, I think, just by saying I'm not really that kind of person. Right. I'm just setting that up as a possibility. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I'm not sure I would have tried it as a speech. Well, it wasn't a speech. I didn't come down and say, <clears throat> I have the following statement to make about not being more sociable with the parents at school. We're halfway through the podcast. I think it's going really great. The conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate. All right, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm pleased to see you. Ooh, there's so much chemistry. It's like a science lab of talking. I'm interested in what you said. Thank you. There's fun chat and there's deep chat. It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking. So I read that you are about to do a film with Steve Coogan. I've nearly finished it. You have? Fact, yeah. I Are have. you able to say what it's about? Um, it's a comedy satire about a retail tycoon. He plays the retail tycoon. And I play someone who's has been paid to write a very complimentary biography of him. Okay. And yeah. Is that the first time you've worked with him? Uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. I'd met him, at, at, you know, the odd do. But yeah. And, he, you know, I think he's he's brilliant. Yeah. And it's directed by Michael Winterbottom. Oh, and, right. Um, Obviously, the trip and everything, and I hadn't worked with before. And he's twenty-four hour party people, one of my favourites. Yeah, yeah. Does he have unusual working methods and directing methods? And I well, I haven't done many films, but I think so. I think he has a slightly. I mean, it's not a documentary, and it's not a spoof documentary either. But he has a slightly documentary-ish feel to it. So it's there's not a, like a video village where the director and the costume and makeup people are looking at the monitors kind of thing it's like michael's there sort of behind the camera deciding what the shots are then and there and it's quite informal in that way Mm. Um, and i think therefore quite quick yeah are you improvising in that environment bits of improvisation but also there's a script and that so i think the main in general the aim is to get the script in the can and then have fun with it and then have fun with it Yeah. yeah and are you when they say have fun with it are you having fun or are you just going, oh, I'll just say the line again? Well, I, oddly, I have had a bit of fun with it. And I, yeah. my expectation was very much it would be, well, I'm happy with the line. But I think largely because it's intended to be, OK, we've got the line and now we might have a chat around that subject. So it's not felt like we've compromised the line. The line's there and now we can do other stuff as well that might be useful. And so I've been more comfortable with that. Certainly in my experience of TVs, they're always under pressure of time when you're filming. And so I'm quite a believer in thinking about what's going to be said in a different room when there isn't a crew waiting. But when you've got a little bit more time and you're not worried about dropping a scene if you don't move on, then then it turns out I can enjoy that a bit and, you know, be a little bit less arsy. And was the filming of Peep Show, for example that pressurized environment there was yeah very much so yeah Yeah, yeah. we were always up against it because because of the pov filming style that takes longer and there wasn't more money for it to take longer understandably so yeah i was very comfortable with we we talk about the scripts and then we start shooting and then you know and sam bain jesse armstrong who wrote it uh, wrote brilliant scripts and i never really wanted to 
if I had any issues with them, I wanted to talk about it before we were shooting, not on the day, because it was quite a taut show, and that was one of the things that was good about it. And anything, it was 20, you know, it's Channel 4 half hour, 23, 24 minutes. It goes by very quickly, and there's not really time for longers or little comic cul-de-sacs. Yeah. Yeah. I remember doing some job or other where the makeup person was saying, oh, I've been working on this pilot called... I don't know if it was called Peep Show then. It would have been called POV then. Right. Yeah. And sh- and you actually had cameras mounted on your heads. Yes, yes. We did that quite a bit for the first series and very occasionally for the second series and then never again. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, the footage quality was terrible yeah because this is pre way pre gopro yeah, yeah yeah and so it wasn't easy to get a decent camera mounted on a hat like that no, no. and even in the you know the edit of the first series that i think they used comparatively little yeah. that they got from the head cameras and a lot more that they got from a normal camera where we were sort of reaching around the sides that was always the acting ball ache for peep show was when you had to do stuff with your hands uh-huh. On your own POV, you had to sort of pick something and have a sip of something, you know. And so, what are you doing? Reaching around the camera yeah, person? Yeah, so uh. reaching around the camera person. That it was always easier if, in a scene, you only did things with one hand. If you had to, if you had to use both hands, that would involve either running all the way around the cameraman and sort of getting a right hand in the other side, or sort of somehow squeezing yourself under the lens and <laughs> shoving your right arm outward so it looked like it was coming in from the right direction. Yeah. Because it was no good if the two hands appeared to be coming in from the left-hand side or the right-hand side. Right. That was a sort of b- a boring, repeated problem that we never properly solved, which the head cam did solve. But, yeah. But um, the head cam footage was crap. So. Yeah. And originally, was it you, you guys were just sort of sat watching TV? That was the original concept we never shot it as just that okay it was sort of like a live beavis and butthead yes i think that was where the idea came from because sam and jesse and andrew connor who was a magician and impressionist and then a presenter on the word yeah yeah Yeah. and um and who he who set up objective productions who made peep show and the three of them sort of hatched the ideas starting with as a kind of beavis and butthead thing which would be heavily reliant on talking over other television programs and then that got developed into well actually maybe you see other things through their eyes and then sam and jesse had the idea of the interior monologues and you know as they thought it through and started writing it the watching tv bit became less and less prominent and then when we came to make the series it became clear that getting footage for them to watch is incredibly expensive and difficult and so there was a massive incentive not to have very much of that at all and so ultimately it was hardly any of the show but that's how it started yeah Yeah. and did those characters yours and robert's characters come fairly fully formed presumably they developed when you dropped the um tv commentary thing well oddly we'd co-written a show a pilot with Sam and Jesse for, uh, I think it was then BBC Choice, before Peep Show or POV was commissioned. It was called All Day Breakfast. I don't know what, don't know quite why it was called All Day Breakfast, but that was to be a studio sitcom set in a living room of a flat. It would aspire to be more in the comic area of something like Father Ted, you know, where things that are a bit 
more comically heightened can happen. Yeah. But the characters were probably not a million miles away from Mark and Jeremy. So I think when Sam and Jesse then went to write POV, they took what, what the four of us had kind of worked on there as their starting point. Right. So, yeah. But how long did it run in the end? It was on from 2003 to 2015, but only nine series, so it wasn't one a year. Wow, but that is like a sort of American programme. By the end, we'd, it was like we'd done two American series. Yeah. <laughs> My children are getting into it. Oh, that's, that's very nice. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I mean, there's lots of stuff around that I, th- I think sometimes a certain type of teenager enjoys watching stuff that isn't exactly of the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got some kind of retro cachet to it. I think I felt that. I used to watch a lot of Monty Python. And, yeah, okay. Uh, listen to The Goon Show and that sort of thing. I think I had a sort of sense that you can never be sure of the quality of anything contemporary because the jury's still out on it. How'd you get into The Goons? I think my f- a friend at school had some tapes of them. And it was, I qu- you know, I thought they were in places very funny places incomprehensible yeah that's the thing Um, isn't it because you're drawn in by i i I liked the tone of of it yeah that and python as well i like the funny voices i like the personalities involved but then sometimes i I either didn't get the jokes or the jokes just didn't really seem to land that well Well, you don't know do you yeah as well you don't know am i missing the reference or or is this it's just not a low quality piece of material. <laughs> yeah. And when I was a teenager, comedy, I, I was really into it and I was defining myself by it. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't into music and I didn't know about the charts and stuff, but this was something I could call my own. I didn't blame the shows when they didn't make me laugh. I blamed myself. Okay. And I tried to look for what was funny about them and... You know, and I've learnt so many cultural references just from working out, oh, well, that must be funny because of that. Proust must be some sort of posh author because that is what would make the summarised Proust competition funny. He, he, must, right. he must be highbrow and verbose or, or, me, this, or this isn't a joke. With American comedy, it was references to Spyro Agnew. And I was like, is that a made-up name? And then finally you find out who Spyro Agnew is, and it's like, oh. I don't know who Spyro Agnew is. He was Nixon's VP. Oh. It's a, th- it's a thing, though, about comedy. I think that, that, that comedy, for, its, for the core comedy fans, it doesn't need to be consistent. Mm. It needs to be engaging and, and weird, and it needs to feel like it's something that not everyone would be into. Yeah, the universe needs to be consistent, or yeah. the personalities. Oh, oh yes, absolutely, yeah. But that you don't need the gag rate doesn't. No, um, and the necessity for for the jokes to keep coming at a high rate and quality is much more of a mainstream requirement, <laughs> you know. And that's the Python films versus the Python TV show, I suppose. Yeah, the- in fact, at a certain point, I realised that the shows I liked least were the ones with the most jokes in. Right, and you saw that. Most obviously in the more low-quality American sitcoms. And they're very heavily structured, gag, gag, right. gag, gag. And they were all pretty lame. Yes, absolutely. And but then I you would got say laugh something track. Like, and... Something like Seinfeld, though. Yeah, that's that... later on. And then yeah, I'm yeah. talking about watching oh. mainstream American sitcoms in the 70s or whatever. Right, or, yeah. or the early 80s. Yeah, then when you get to Seinfeld and the Larry Sanders show, it was suddenly... Oh, okay. This is much better. Yeah. What was the British stuff? Were you into? You're obviously an upstart crow. Ben Elton's show. 
Were you into his stuff when you were a young comedy nerd? Yes, very much into Blackadder. Yeah, Blackadder was a huge show for me. I watched that over and over again. Yeah. And Faulty Towers, does, it was almost not worth saying because it's, it's so good it's not interesting to like it. But <laughs> what was it about Blackadder? Just, just the that central performance? That central performance and the sort of historical world and the sarcasms and the rhythm of it. Yeah, it's, the wordplay. Yeah. I sort of feel that my comic rhythms the things that I, or the, what i hope a sketch will have uh, it, there's a tune in my head that the beat in my head is something that's been set by blackadder and monty python you know that's how i feel jokes should come and which why you know i love doing upstart crow and it's, it's sort of i it's the closest i'll ever get to being in blackadder which was a sort of literal not, not a dream in, in that i hoped it awake when i was a teenager the theatrical artifice of it, the the studio audience laughter, the the scenes building to a punchline. I loved all that. What's he like to work with, Ben Elton? Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. Terribly nice, creative, good man. You know, I'm sort of thrilled to have got to know him, really, because I'm quite nervous of meeting comedy heroes. Because you sort of think, well, it doesn't matter, really, what they're like. You know, it's whatever, it's... Monty Python or Faulty Towers or Blackadder that I liked, and that's that. Why confuse that? But he's so nice and fun and funny and intense. Yeah, he's inspiring, basically. Mm. He's a. I, I'm. Yeah, I, I've got a real comedy crush on him. So. And have you met any Pythons? I've been introduced to John Cleese yeah. to say hello to, but I haven't spoken to him. And I've met Michael Palin a few times, and he was charming. And I feel like. Uh, at every moment in his company, I was pathetically gauche. But, <laughs> but I'm very glad I met him because I think he's really brilliant. And I've also been introduced to Eric Idle. <laughs> but no, I didn't speak to him. No reflection on that. I think they're yeah, all brilliant. That sounded like, yeah. Michael uh, Palin, he was amazing. And yeah, I've also been yeah, introduced to it. Eric Idle. And he poked me in the eye. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> I have nothing. I, I just said hello to him. And I thought, wow, that's one of the Pythons. The one I've spoken to yeah, yeah. is Michael Palin. Yeah. And that, that was great. But I was awkward the whole time. Right. So he knows, he literally definitely knows who I am. I'm that awkward person. (laughs) (laughs) He's great. Uh, I like Eric Idle too. I think maybe he was my favourite of the Pythons. You know, you like Palin because he's like the most approachable one in this group of slightly threateningly crazy people. But Eric Idle, just the voices, (laughs) I really liked. They were just a, a brilliant sketch team. Yeah, uh, you know, and they they had that that not you know there's some brilliant sketches, but also all the time you're watching, you sort of have a sense of this impish creativity, you know, about to fire. You know, they're thinking about all these things, and things are coming in from different directions. And, yeah, and and so you you're not just you you feel you have a sense of their collective creative identity that there is this authorship, and you know. Yeah, I was obsessed with that show. I take out the bins Every Monday evenings For collection early on Tuesday morning It's said for holidays One week it's recycling The next week it is stinky bin 
If you miss the Stinky Bin collection, it'll be sat there for a fortnight going shit. So, what, what does your average week look like when you're in panel show world? And are you now... Here's a bunch of questions I'm throwing at you, yeah. panel show related. Have you had to just commit yourself to Would I Lie to You, for example, and stop playing the field with other panel shows? <laughs> I, there was a long time when I would just... I'd, I mean, I like doing panel shows, I do, you know, um, but I... You'd be I in used, trouble if you didn't. I, yeah. <laughs> I would, it would be, people would feel so sorry for me. Yeah. Um, but I don't always... I, I say no more often than yes now when asked on things because yes I sort of feel would I lie to you I know it's going to come out well and you don't know so much for someone else's show yeah I mean is there is there any big panel show you haven't done that you think Uh, I haven't done a league of their own which is I think a sky sport one right right and then there's an ITV one with Keith Lemon oh yeah okay I haven't done that but they're both in a they're I would say slightly different genre they're more you know, sort of crazy variety show around some desks. My favourite kind of panel show would be just as good on the radio. Okay. You know, it's basically incidentally televised. Did you ever play the book game? Like, I'm not talking on TV because I don't think there is a TV version of it or even a radio version of it. And I can never think like, why? I've talked about it on this podcast before, but do you know the game I'm talking about? Is it? uh, The First Lines game. Yes, I have played that game. You can buy it. Yes. You You don't need to buy it because it's, just you, you all you need is some books that's it's right called I'm, ex libris there you go i was the, made the, aware of it after the, i spoke about it before yeah ex yeah, libris that ex libris is a good game it really yeah. is great isn't it yeah. like i could so, i could easily see that on tv um you went on room 101 right have you been on more than once no just once okay yeah, yeah. what were some of the things that you didn't get through cuz you have to pitch for the stuff you're going to yes you put on to, there don't you yeah. to the producers I remember doing sugar cubes. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's all I remember about it. I can't remember the other things I was banging on about. Oh, I had a go at Cajun food as (laughs) as it manifests itself in uh, British restaurants. Uh Uh-huh. But I can't remember whether that... That I did on the show, but it might have been cut out. Anyway, that's not what... This is the opposite of what you asked. Um, No, yeah, I was wondering, like, if you had... Was it easy for you to come up with stuff? It was quite... I mean, yes, and... No, in that I've spent... I realise that a lot of what I talk about is things that annoy me. Right. Uh, and that's a, that's my sort of comic way in. I'm on the lookout for that quite often. Yeah. So having to pick some new ones that are my special favourite ones, you know, I suppose it was a bit... I was slightly picking my way in a through a, a land that was quite... Now, this is a metaphor I'm going to get out of. <laughs> Picking my way through a land that was already quite intensively farmed. Wow, you yeah, really did that I justice. Think so, why picking my way, hoeing my way, hoeing some? You could pick your way re- through the reaping, land, can you? Reaping a decent performance lunch from a land that had already been. I thought you were great with picking your way okay, through fine. because you're looking around, picking up little stones here and there, thinking is this annoying, yeah. and then discarding it. And then you find one, oh, this is a peach, and put it, although not a peach. Um, This is one that I wouldn't have even have pitched. I wonder if you can relate to it, though. The brown paper that Amazon use in certain boxes. (laughs) It's very, it's sort of long sheets of crumpled up brown paper, but it smells very strongly of vomit. (laughs) 
I've never smelt it. Have you not? I, well, I'm not going to now. I've had situations where I'm just walking through the house and I'm thinking, oh, who's puked? And then I'll <laughs> go around the corner and I'll find that there's an Amazon box lying there yeah. with the crumpled paper. And it's like, oh, that's it. Holy shit. Yeah. It really reeks. Maybe that's my problem. Do you feel bad about using Amazon? Yes, sometimes. Yeah, I do. I've decided with Amazon because I was thought for a while maybe I shouldn't use Amazon because it's destroying the high street. And then, but then you think Amazon are very convenient, so I've decided to use Amazon but feel bad about it. <laughs> I think that's. <laughs> I think that's. Anyone would say that's a good system because that's. It's a big thing about the the high street is dying, you know, and everything's closing which people don't want. But at the same time, I don't, I, I can't think that the n- whole notion of things delivered that you order online is something that therefore humanity shouldn't do. I mean, that's not in itself immoral, is it? Well, no. I mean, the problem with Amazon is, is there's only one of them. Yeah. And they're, they're, so it's not really... There's only one of them and they don't pay their taxes. Yeah, exactly. Um, if they paid their taxes and there were two competing ones, or three competing ones... And obviously there are other online people, yeah. but, you know, like Amazon with that kind of model. Then you sort of feel, well, that's fine. We could use the convenience. Why do which Amazon... Would be diminished yeah. convenience, obviously, because they'd be paying tax, so they'd be less good. But nevertheless, still relative convenience. That's how they got to number one. We really... By not paying tax. Really help. <laughs> Apparently. I mean, it's bound to help, isn't top it? Top tip if you're starting up a company. Because you can use that money for something else. Right. I'd like to say as well that i try to find alternatives to amazon when i can and only sometimes have to lean on it because we're out in the middle of nowhere no i i mean i try and find alternatives when i can but also sometimes when i can i don't yeah i mean i feel bad and then i don't um it's very efficient it really is and that's good to be celebrated although doing a thing well yep 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 although it depends what delivery guy you get out where we are right uh, some of them are great dpd can frankly fuck themselves are dp who are the ones that i don't know if it's probably not dpd but it's a very funny story i thought that suddenly a few months ago all the kfc's had to close for like two weeks because they changed their chicken deliverer the company that kfc had previously used were a specialist food delivery service Mm. company and as a result of kfc leaving that company i think had to lay off a load of staff it was a real blow losing that contract and they'd gone to a generic delivery company and the whole of kfc ground to a halt like two and a half days into this company taking over the contract and it just seemed so comic this new company just couldn't believe the amount of chicken that they were expected to live. They said, yeah, we can do that, whatever. We'll undercut this specialist food delivery company. Yeah, we can do it for less than that. Yeah, we'll deliver the chicken. And it's almost like they'd sort of thought, <laughs> so what, is it like one chicken a week to each KFC? Is it to, you, know, what, you, wouldn't, you need more chicken? What, they, they couldn't believe the amount of chicken <laughs> that they suddenly had to get to different places all over. You, could you, can you imagine how much chicken that is to take over the contract tomorrow? That's a, the stuff of nightmares. You've got to, to make sure that every KFC in Britain has enough chicken perpetually. How would you go about that <laughs> as a starting point? And I think some chancer at this delivery firm said, yeah, no, we can do that. Yeah, how hard can it be? And then found out very quickly how hard that could be. But they didn't 
I bet have a problem with just turning up and instead of chicken they were just getting the little cards saying <laughs> we tried to deliver your chickens but you were out yeah yeah we'll try again tomorrow <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. I took one look at that website, and I knew that the woman I have been living with is not my wife. I'd never been any good with computers, so when I showed the website that I had built to sell my paintings to Tom, he just refused to believe that I had made it. And he started telling people that the government had taken his wife and replaced her with an AI. But Debbie had made the website herself. After hearing an advert on a podcast, she had visited squarespace.com slash Buxton and done a free trial. They had all these professional-looking templates there, so I chose one I liked, and I started typing into it. And then I dragged in some pictures, I uploaded a video, before I knew it, I had a website. I've seen The Matrix. I know that you need big green numbers and a long leather coat to build a website. It's just not that easy. But it was that easy. And when Debbie decided she wanted to purchase her new website, she remembered the offer code from the podcast. I typed in Buxton and I saved 10%. I was jumping up and down and shouting in your face at Tom. And it was around then that he started with the conspiracy theory. Why don't you go to squarespace.com slash Buxton, Tom? And you could see how easy it is to build your own website. Because that's exactly what they want me to do. Continue. Welcome back, podcats. That was David Mitchell there, in case you forgot. Very grateful indeed to David for making the time to talk to me. Uh, Looking forward to seeing that film, the Michael Winterbottom film with Steve Coogan. Greed is the name of the film. I've put a little link to a, a short Empire article about that. And there's lots of other links to related items that you can find in the description of this podcast. But let me just um, flag a couple of those things for you right now before I waffle a bit further about other bullshit. Uh, I was interviewed for a podcast the other day by Samira Ahmed. It's quite exciting. Uh, I like Samira Ahmed and I felt, well, I felt important being interviewed, especially as... I was in the company of quite a few cool people for this new podcast she's doing called How I Found My Voice. And it is basically Samira doing, I think it's half hour programs with people talking about their formative creative influences. So uh, other people in the series include Benjamin Zephaniah, the poet, Rose McGowan, activist, actor, Philip Pullman, writer, Catherine Ryan, comedian, and one of the greatest artists and thinkers of his generation, Adam Buxton. But it was good fun and very nice to meet uh, Samira. You can find the How I Found My Voice podcast on Acast and other podcast bins. Next, let me tell you about a forthcoming podcast episode, which you might want to do a bit of prep for. Up to you. Uh, At the end of this run of podcasts, and the plan is to put about uh, 10 or 11 out 
once a week for the next few weeks. I'm not sure exactly how many there'll be, but towards the end of the run will be a podcast in which myself, Sarah Pascoe, and Richard Iwadi discuss the book Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. It's one of the most famous books in the world. I had to read it when I was a young man at school and didn't really get it or like it very much. And then recently, I was staying at the house of um, my friend and uh, podcast producer, Seamus Murphy-Mitchell. There's loads of books lying around, and one of them was Catcher in the Rye, and I sort of picked it up and started leafing through it and immediately got hooked back in and read it all again and really enjoyed it and, and just felt that I wanted to talk about it with some other people. And I knew that Richard Iwade was a big fan because I'd spoken about the book with him before. It was a big influence on him when he was growing up. And I thought I'd ask Sarah Pascoe to join us because she's a voracious reader and, I don't know, I just like Sarah Pascoe. So she came along and we recorded a, a very rambly conversation about it, book club style talking about the book itself and the way it's written and about J.D. Salinger and the, the kind of myth and controversy surrounding him as an author and a person. Um, as I say, very, very sort of formless and rambly, but um, you might find it interesting, especially if you're a fan of the book. And if you've never read the book before, well, maybe this is an opportunity for you to give it a go. It's easy to read. It's not very long. I'll put a link to the Goodreads website in the uh, description of the podcast where you can read a synopsis and reviews of the book and you can also buy a copy if you wish. So that's coming up. We'll give it a go. You know, maybe we'll do it again with other books in future. I thought we'd start with a, a big obvious one. So yeah, speaking of books, as you may know, I've been spending the last few months trying to get more of my book written still not quite finished but I do feel as if the end is in sight and I hope it's going to be out towards the end of this year 2019 and I'll be traveling about uh, reading from the book and chatting with audiences in autumn of this year but I'm still doing the odd work in progress show before then and what I mean by that is just um, doing shows around about an hour an hour and a half long where I read bits from the book and kind of um, talk through what I'm writing and it's a useful thing for me just to to hear how it sounds out loud you know what I mean anyway I'm doing a few shows here in Norwich if you're local you might like to come along at the Norwich Arts Centre a venue I like very much and this is part of a, a fundraising drive for the Norwich Arts Centre, so all proceeds from the show will be going to support the Arts Centre. Shows are in June, mid-June, I think, and then maybe one more night in July sometime. There is a link in the description of the podcast, so maybe I'll see you there. And when and if you finally get my book, I'm sure some of you will think, why did this take so long? Rosie, come on! Rosie! Come on, dog log. Oh, she's bouncing. It's a slow fly past 
from the hairy bullet. Rose, don't go down there, though. We've got to walk back this way. Yeah, because it's lunchtime soon. So, yeah, the thing is, it's hard working from home on this kind of thing. I'm sure a lot of you can relate. There's just so many distractions, and I've got my various household duties that I still need to perform. You may know I'm responsible for the bins and the recycling at Castle Buckles. And you may also be aware that I'm the house's entertainment manager. So it is my responsibility to recommend films and TV shows for my wife and occasionally for my children. Though actually, increasingly, they are the ones who uh, recommend stuff to me nowadays. And the last thing my son told me that we should watch was Russian Doll. Actually, this was a couple of months back. But I really liked Russian Doll. And it's on Netflix. A lot of my... You know, I, I'm aware that people get very angry sometimes. Why are you always going on about fucking Netflix? Fuck you, is what they say. Just in the street. It's very shocking. But that's a media stranglehold problem that I am not personally responsible for. So get off my back, all right? Before you even get on my back, get off my back. Natasha Leone, American comedian, actor, stars in this, I'm quoting now from the blurb, Stars in this comedy drama series is Nadia, a young woman who is on a journey to be the guest of honour at a party in New York City. But she gets caught in a mysterious loop as she repeatedly attends the same event and dies at the end of the night each time, only to awaken the next day unharmed as if nothing had happened. It's kind of a Groundhog Day situation she's dealing with there. In addition to starring... Leone co-created the show with Amy Poehler of Saturday Night Live and Parks and Recreation, who also serves as a writer and director for the Netflix original series. I thought it was so good. I really enjoyed it. I thought she was brilliant. Oh, it's properly raining now. Um, am I going to put my hood up? Nah. Because I'm an outdoor guy. I'm just going to commune with the elements and carry on talking about shows that you've already seen Russian Doll, it's good it's funny, it's weird it's interesting, it's clever it's um, beautifully put together it looks great, it's just eight half hours so it's not a a life destroying commitment really you know, you can pretty much blaze through the whole thing, certainly in a week give it a go What else have I been enjoying? I mean, all the usual stuff, I'm afraid to say. I'd love to come back and have all these obscure recommendations for you. But uh, no, it's Alan Partridge this time, which was so good. So many brilliant performances. So many proper laugh-out-loud moments there. What do you think, Techno Bird? Yeah, Techno Bird agrees. Line of Duty, another obvious one, but come on, come on. It's fun. It's tense. It's solid. It's satisfying. It's like my favourite kind of trip to the toilet. And then, of course, there was Fleabag. What do you think, Rosie? Did you like Fleabag? I thought it was a superbly articulate yelp of generational angst and spiritual panic that managed to be funny, clever, compassionate and caustic while maintaining a level of ingenious invention that few TV shows of any genre have matched in recent years. Yes, Rosie, I agree with you. 
I just thought it was marvellous the way she used the breaking of the fourth wall thing as a motif about establishing meaningful emotional connections. And I just thought it was the best thing I've seen since she put that big bit of chicken in my bowl last week. It was a masterpiece. Yeah, what, Fleabag? The chicken. Well, it was nice chicken. And how about Alan Partridge? It was a masterpiece. Do you like the stuff with Tim Key and their interactive board? Now I'm talking about the chicken still. Right, okay. And how about Game of Brexit? Oh, I love Game of Brexit. It's so good. Who's your favourite character? Oh, God. I love Laura Koonsberg. I love all the characters, you know. They're so scary and and weird. And uh, I just hope it never ends because it's so exciting. It's supposed to be finishing in October now, but I'm pretty sure they'll do another series. Oh, I hope so. It's a masterpiece. Yep. Right, let's head home. And, oh my goodness, I nearly forgot as well. Don't forget to check out the Adam Buxton app. Now, the Adam Buxton app and my blog are, let's face it, not updated that often. But they haven't been forgotten about. And there will be new bits and pieces uh, going up there on the app. The app is free, by the way. But there are little bits of bonus content that you can access for a very small fee, which goes towards maintaining the app and the blog. Um, Thanks to the good folks at Really Quite Something Limited. And there are going to be a few new bonus podcast episodes up there. So do check it out. I think the next one is going to be with the director, Chris Smith, who directed uh, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond which was a a documentary I was really kind of obsessed with in 2017. You may have heard me talking about it with other podcast guests. But if you go and explore the bonus audio section of the Adam Buxton app, you will find a conversation with me and Chris about that film and some of his other work. Well, mainly his film American Movie, which is great as well. And uh, yeah... That's on there, as well as lots of other bits and pieces that you will be able to access for absolutely nothing. Right, flipping egg, Tucker. Time to go home. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support. Thanks to Matt Lamont for additional editing on this episode. Thanks to Acast for continuing to host this and many other great, great podcasts on their platform. Until next week. Please be careful. I love you. Bye!